We're going to come to the time in our service now. We'll look at a passage from the Bible. We're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. This may not be a book you go to often. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 836. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the big black numbers are the chapter numbers, beginning at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, and when you found that, would you stand with me and I'll read our passage together. This is the Apostle Paul speaking here, and he says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant. Some of your translations will say unaware. We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's God's word. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing on this time now as we come to his word. Living God, I pray that you would come now by your spirit and be present among us. We believe that you inspired these words to be written, and so this is not some ancient historical document alone, but a living word that speaks and acts, that pierces and transforms. And I'm asking you to accomplish a purpose that you've sent out your word for this morning in each one of us. I believe each one here has been brought with the purpose that you have. And you say in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, accomplish that in each one here this morning. And as I always ask now, eternal God, move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, aside from, I'll, I'll agree, all the uh, unfortunate, unhelpful, uh, let's just call it time and maybe even soul-sucking content available to us with a resource like the internet, there are also occasionally having this huge amount of information at our fingertips. At times, you come across some really beautiful and inspiring things as well. If you're someone like me who visits a page like YouTube uh, fairly frequently, like I do, you'll know that on the main page, they have uh, recommended videos. They're things that they'll say, hey, you know what? A lot of people like this. You should check it out. It's worth watching. Not always, but sometimes you find some gems. And a couple weeks ago, I found this video, which to me pictures, I think, perfectly a part of the hope that Paul means to inspire in the hearts of these men and women that he's writing to as it relates to the idea of a glorious reunion. These are videos, maybe you've watched these yourself. These are videos where kids are 
surprised with unexpected reunions from their parents who are in the military overseas. They, they don't know, when am I ever going to see mom or dad again? And, and they're in the military, so we don't even know if, if I will see you again. They have no hope of knowing, when am I going to see you? And then they show up and surprise them, and they catch it on video just to see what this reunion looks like. I think it really shows really powerfully what the kind of hope the gospel offers to those who are in Christ, of a glorious reunion that will take place one day for those who are in Him. I want us to watch this together for just a minute, and then we will uh, talk a bit about how it relates to our passage this morning. that all day long. Wow, the kid at the end especially always gets me, man, the face, the, 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 the joy in these unexpected reunions. It's, it's powerful, but you watch that, and I'm asking you, okay, so, so what's, what's happening? Why? Maybe, I, I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm doing something wrong. I have never once shown up to my kid's school with their forgotten lunch, their, their boots, and just, ah, oh, the tears, and hugging me. It's never happened. Maybe if I showed up in a military uniform, maybe that's the missing piece. If I come with a military uniform, no, right? That's, that's not it. it in, in every single one of those cases, it's not just seeing your father or mother. It's not seeing a, a brother or sister who's gone overseas alone that brings such a response, but it's the desperate longing to see them again being realized at last. It's where, it's where every tear, every sigh, every grumble and groan and curse, every, where are you right now when I need you here? 
that has chiseled away at your hope of seeing that person again that at once vanishes in a single smile from their face. If you've ever spoken to friends or just read some of the accounts of people who've had to wave goodbye to their loved ones as they head overseas to fight in wars or to serve their country in this way, they often speak of an incredibly complex mix of emotions. Everything from immense pride to, to really an overwhelming sense of grief and, and loss. Particularly in a scenario like this, you're, you're sending off someone you love with the desperate hope of seeing them again, but with no assurance that you actually will. The longer they're gone, the weaker that your hope of seeing them again becomes. When Jesus' disciples watched their master and friend leave and ascend and return to his Father in heaven, John Denver leaving on a jet plane, we don't know when he'll be back again. They probably had some of that same mix of emotions. Uh, everything from joy and, and awe at just seeing another demonstration of Jesus' divinity to also fear, anxiety, maybe even depression as Jesus is gone again with this feeling of, what are we going to do now? It's that latter feeling, as I'm sure, a feeling that all of them had felt, no doubt, just weeks earlier when they'd watched their friend Jesus arrested, tried, and then crucified. Now, miraculously, yes, their Lord was alive again, and he presented himself to them alive and to many others to prove he truly was who he said he was. And yet now, here's Jesus again, giving final instructions and leaving. We're told in the book of Acts that as Jesus' disciples stood there, gazing up into the sky, watching Jesus ascend to his Father, very much like I'm sure watching a loved one on an airplane or on an aircraft carrier sail off with someone that you love on board, we're told that two angels appeared. Two angels appeared and assured them that they would, absolutely, you will see Jesus come again, they said, exactly as you've seen him go. So, obviously, this is an experience that, that powerfully shaped the rest of their lives, having this hopeful assurance that no matter what, Jesus was coming again, and that when he came, he would finally set up that kingdom on earth that all those disappointed crowds at Jesus' triumphal entry had hoped he would bring the first time he came. He, he was coming again, and he was going to bring this new heavens and new earth. He was going to set up his kingdom. But uh, for those of us who, who've never seen Jesus in the flesh, let alone watched him ascend into heaven and have angels tell us he's coming again, everyone from, from these people in the Thessalonian church, to you and me, the church around the world today, that hopeful assurance of Jesus' return can be a little harder to come by. I mean, we've been told that this Jesus we love, he, he is coming again someday, and that when he comes, he'll set right all that's wrong with the world, and we long for that, but as the years continue to go by without seeing him, and as we continue to live in a world and experience all the devastating effects of living in a world that's in desperate need of his return, well, the longer he's gone, the weaker our hope of seeing him again can become. This is the last Sunday in our Advent series we've entitled, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him. 
Each Sunday we've been looking at a particular well-known Christmas carol and reflecting on the way that those same truths that we sing about every year are also reflected in the Bible. And the carol we're looking at this morning that we sang already is Once in Royal David's City. It's 155 in that green hymn book in front of you if you want to have those words with you. It's a carol that includes many of the themes that we've been looking at throughout this series. The fullness of God in human flesh, veiled in flesh in this little baby to to the, the, the unexpected arrival of the king coming to an unwed mother in a stable. All these same themes we see in this carol. And yet, something that's unique about this carol, I think, is that last verse. That last verse, which transports us beautifully from the perspective of Jesus' first coming, to a stable outside the city of Bethlehem, first century A.D., to some future date at his second coming, showing us beautifully and hopefully that future day when Jesus will come no longer veiled in flesh, but now with revealing all his glory for all to see. Jesus' second coming we see for the believer in Jesus, brings great hope as well, because just like his first coming, he comes with a purpose. And this purpose in his second coming, we read, is this time to remove sin's curse and gather us, as the carol says, to gather us to be with him for all eternity. It's one of the greatest Hopes in the gospel, actually, that that no matter what we may face in this life, even death itself, Paul says, cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And death, one of the most devastating effects of that curse, that sin's curse in this world, is the thing that was causing this church that Paul's writing to in Thessalonica to feel so much confusion and despair. For them, as they continued to long for Jesus' return themselves, their worry was that perhaps those who died before Jesus came back would miss out, that that they would have no part in that joyful restoration that Jesus was going to bring when he came. So they're just trying to put these pieces together, what's going on, and they're they're grieving. These guys are going to miss because they're not here when he comes. And so part of Paul's point of writing this letter was to encourage this church as they waited patiently for Jesus coming again. And even if that's not your particular question or your particular struggle as it relates to Jesus' return, I think all of us, we could all probably use some encouragement as we live in this same sin-cursed world that they did. We could probably all use some encouragement as we seek to have our hope in Jesus' return maintained. So in order to do that, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. I want to show you resurrection hope and reuniting hope. Resurrection hope, reuniting hope. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again, please, uh, that passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Follow along with me. We've spent the majority of this series looking at the hope of Jesus' first coming. Let's conclude now by looking at the hope the Bible offers in Jesus' coming again. First of all, resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. And and truly, when it comes to restoring our hope in Jesus' return, this is actually the only place we need to look. There's no other place we need to look, for this is the one place that that hope is grounded and which the entirety of the Christian faith depends, actually. 
I mean, yeah, we're going to look at something else Paul presents to restore our hope in Jesus' return as well. But without this foundation, even that hope falls. And we see that hope in verse 14 of our passage. Look with me there. In the context of offering gospel comfort to those who've lost loved ones, as well as gospel hope for what the return of Jesus will bring, Paul says in verse 14, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, it's essential for us to see and to know that the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead is foundational. It's foundational both for Paul's theology as well as for the entirety of the Christian faith. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the hope of the second half of verse 14. If you don't have the resurrection, we don't have forgiveness of sins. If you don't have the resurrection, you don't have the Christian faith. If you don't have the resurrection, we are all wasting our time this morning, wasting a perfectly good Sunday when you could be sleeping in. Everything rests on Jesus' resurrection. This is why Paul will sandwich this claim right in the middle of these offers of gospel comfort and gospel hope. It's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to present a whole summary of the gospel and say, actually, that's meaningless. We're, we're to be pitied above all people if the resurrection isn't true. And the reason is simply this. If Jesus truly rose from the dead like he said he would, then that means he truly is who he said he was. And everything he said should be If he didn't rise from the dead, like he said he would, then he's not God, and who cares what he said? So Paul says plainly and emphatically that we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. Which, if you know anything about Paul, you know that's no small kind of just off-the-cuff kind of statement for him to make. If you know Paul's story or if you've just forgotten, never heard it before, Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, remember? Someone who was passionate in his studies as a Pharisee and tyrannical in his hatred of this fake Messiah Jesus and his ridiculous followers. And what radically changed Paul and turned him into an apostle in the early church and one of the greatest missionary the church has ever known, actually, was not suddenly becoming convinced of Jesus' teachings. It wasn't that he just suddenly was walking one day and thought, you know, maybe Jesus really was God. No, he saw him. He met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He met him face to face, and that changed everything for Paul. It turned upside down his entire life, his whole worldview. Everything was changed in that moment. And so now, on the basis of that fact of Jesus' resurrection, Paul says in verse 14, the second half of verse 14, he says, So, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so, therefore, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, a couple things to say quickly. First of all, those two words, in him or in Christ, are packed full of meaning in anything that Paul writes. Okay, there's volumes written about all Paul means in those two words, in Christ, in him. Now, We don't have time to go through all that, so let me just summarize as best I can what Paul means when he says, in Christ, in him. That the substitutionary death of Jesus and his perfect righteousness have been applied to someone 
They've been credited to someone in such a way that they now have their sins, past, present, and future, forgiven, and they are now adopted into God's family for all time. That's a big picture idea of what it means to be in Christ. Second, you'll see throughout this passage, Paul refers to these people who have died at the church's mourning. He refers to these people who have died but are also in him as having fallen asleep. Did you notice that? He keeps talking about those who've fallen asleep. Now, in Greek or, or Jewish cultures in this time period, that was a common way that they would sometimes refer to death, but it's incredibly significant in a New Testament context to refer to death as falling asleep because it pictures the way that Jesus has radically transformed death for those who trust in him through his own death on the cross. In fact, Theologian Leon Morris says in his commentary on this passage that in the entire New Testament, Christians are never said to die, only that they've fallen asleep. Conversely, Jesus is not said to fall asleep, but that he died for us. Which means, at least, Jesus experienced the horrors of death so that you and I would never have to. The sting of death has now been taken out. So Paul's first point is that because Jesus truly rose again, proving that he truly was who he said he was, he can truly return again, right? A Messiah that's still in the tomb is not returning anywhere. But it means that, that, that the words that those two angels said to the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven, they weren't just empty promises seeking to offer them comfort, like the kind of things you say to your child when their goldfish dies. Oh, you know what? One of these days, we're going to see Splashy again. We're going to walk by that river, and I'm going to see Splashy. I know it. That's, that's not what the angels were doing. It was real hope that they were offering them. Because he said, because we believe Jesus died and rose again like he promised, we can also have hope that he'll truly come again like he promised. And amazingly, powerfully, as it relates to us, to you and I, it's a promise that the God who raised Jesus will also raise Jesus' followers. It means that Jesus can make good on the promise he made in John 11, where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die, only fall asleep. Paul's second point leading up to us then now talking about reuniting hope, is that it is the resurrected Jesus himself who's coming again. It's, he's, he's not phoning it in. He's not sending some powerful angel on his behalf. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Paul says there, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. The Lord himself. And maybe you see it right away, or maybe it's lost in translation. But I think Paul's primary understanding there is that before... Before the thought of reunion with any friends or loved ones who've fallen asleep, the highest hope, the highest hope of any Christian ought to be, as the last verse of our carol says, that our eyes at last shall see him. That should be the, the highest hope of any Christian. Not that we don't have other hopes as well, but the highest hope is that our eyes at last will see him. 
In his final letter to his young protege, Timothy, Paul says that he's talking about receiving the, the crown of righteousness in store for him that the Lord will award, listen, not only to him, but, quote, to those who have longed for his appearing. That's the description of a believer in Jesus, someone who longs for his appearing. Or when John is describing the immensity, the majesty of all the glories of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 22, one of the highest peaks of what that glory and joy is going to look like, he describes as, and they will see his face. That's one of the descriptions. And my question for you as it relates to all this is if you claim to be in Christ yourself, does that describe you? Do you long for Jesus coming? Do you long to look on his face? Do you long to see Jesus like those soldiers' kids long to see their parents? Along with uh, aching back, athlete's foot and dog tags, one of the things that was said to be found on every soldier who had gone overseas and had someone waiting for him when he came back was a photograph. They'd keep a photograph with them, a wife, a girlfriend, a family, whoever, and they would study that picture. They would look at it every day, treasure it, longing, hoping for the day when they would see that face again. Does that describe you and the way that you think of Jesus coming? Do you long for his coming once again? It doesn't at all mean, I'm not meaning to imply at all that there aren't others as well who in the course of your life have fallen asleep that you're longing to see. I don't mean that. We all have people that we're longing to see from a departed spouse to maybe a baby who you only got to hold after they had already fallen asleep. We all have people we're longing to see again. But one of the key distinguishing factors of a true believer is that they are longing above all to see their Savior, to, to see His face, where every tear, every sigh, where every grumble and curse at His absence, every, where are you? I need you here right now. Every one of those things will in a moment be washed away with a single smile from His face. Do you long for that day? That's resurrection hope. It's the hope we can have because of the truth of the resurrection. The last thing I want to look with you from our passage here is reuniting hope. A reuniting hope. And you, you might remember that part of what we looked at in verse 14, along with the hope of Jesus' return that is found in his resurrection, was how when Jesus returned, God would bring with Jesus all those who had fallen asleep in him. As I mentioned this briefly as we began, but one of the reasons Paul is even writing at all about Jesus' return in the first place is because this, the people here in this church in Thessalonica, they were struggling to understand how the hope of Jesus' resurrection related to loved ones who had already fallen asleep, right? They, they, they didn't understand how it worked. Would, like, would, they, would these people just lose out? Would they be factored out of the equation as it related to the coming kingdom Jesus was going to bring? Would they just miss out? Now, first of all, can I just tell you as a pastor, I love that this is the question that they were struggling with. That they would just absolutely believe, oh yeah, we totally believe Jesus is risen again. He's coming back. I just want to understand how that works out now with these friends and loved ones who also knew Jesus. How does it work out for them? Trying to put the pieces together. I tell you, listen, you want to fire me up 
as a pastor, come to me any day, any day of the week, tell me about how you're trying to wrestle through something and you're, struggling, you're looking at the Bible and like, how does this apply to my life? I'm trying to figure out how this works. Or you said that in a message. How does that mean in this situation? Come to me, please. Not because not, not I need you to pump my tires, but because it's going to show me that one of my greatest hopes for you is, is coming true. That you are growing in your love of God's word. You're, you're digging into it and trying to say, what does this mean for me? What is God calling me to do? Bring such joy to my heart every time you do that. So anytime, please do it. <laughs> Keep it up. And you can see Paul's concern for his own church here. In answering their question in verse 13, look back with me there. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, we just covered in that first point the warrant for Paul's point, that, that claim that they don't need to grieve as those who have no hope. He says it's based entirely on Jesus' resurrection. Remember, he says because God raised Jesus from the dead, he's also going to bring those with Jesus who've fallen asleep. But one of the first things I want you to see from verse 13 there is that very clearly Paul just told us, all of us, that it's okay to grieve the loss of a loved one. He just said, it's okay. okay? It's, not, it's not some higher plane, some higher level of spiritual maturity to just float above the, the struggles and the losses, and the griefs of this life as though they don't touch you. He's, not, he's saying, no, that, that's, that's not at all some higher plane. Remember, John 11, Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Not because he was experiencing some momentary weakness in his humanity, but because death is an enemy. And we should grieve when it overtakes someone. It should cause grief. And so careful reading of verse 13 is going to tell us, first of all, Paul's not saying at all, I don't want you to grieve those who've fallen asleep. He's saying only, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. What is that hope? What is that hope we have? Again, because Jesus died and rose again, if we believe in the resurrection, we can have hope that God will bring with Jesus those loved ones who've fallen asleep in him. Now, Paul could have just left it there. He could have said, okay, so you're going you're to see them again. But graciously, the Spirit of God gives Paul a, an inspired revelation, a vision of what that future day is going to look like when Jesus returns so that he can encourage this church then as well as us today. And we have that vision in verse 16 and 17. Look there now. Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Many of those sights and sounds that Paul just described there in verse 16 have military significance, actually. And they're also intended to demonstrate the power, the divine majesty of Jesus coming, that loud command, voice of the archangel, trumpet call. These would be familiar sounds on a battlefield. So Jesus truly is coming as a, as a conquering king. And then the clouds in verse 17 are, are a symbol used throughout the Old Testament that the New Testament picks up on, which always describe uh, the, the presence or the activity of God. So he's trying to present this picture of power and of military significance of Jesus' second coming. But 
beyond military significance, do you see what else all those first three things Paul describes in verse 13 have in common? Loud command, voice of the archangel, trumpet call. What, what do those three things have in common? Thank you. They're, they're all really loud things. Okay, so uh, what? So what? So God's loud. God's big and loud. That's, that's not surprising. Why, do I, why is that significant? Well, it's incredibly significant when you remember the description that's used throughout the New Testament of people who have died in Christ. What is it? They've fallen asleep. What are really loud sounds usually do to sleeping people? Parents with young kids, help me out. They wake you up. They wake you up. You know, thinking of that, that, that trumpet call of God specifically, just for a second. Let's take in that one piece. If you've ever been to a Remembrance Day ceremony in Canada or some other British Commonwealth countries, uh, where they honor uh, each November 11th, they honor those who've given their lives in service in the military, you've heard that mournful last post played by the trumpet or the bugle. Now, in, in times of war, the last post would be played uh, over the camp at the end of the day when all the sentry posts had been checked and were clear and it was assigned to the soldiers that they could lay down and rest in peace. So they play this last post at the Remembrance Day service. There's a moment of silence, a minute of silence representing the night's vigil. And then they play the Reveille, or if you're American, the Reveille. They play this Reveille, which is the wake-up call. It's time to wake up. The two tunes, it is said, symbolize sunset and sunrise, respectively, and therefore death and resurrection. Which means, when Jesus comes again, one of the very first things on his to-do list is to play the Reveille and wake up those who have fallen asleep in him and bring them to himself. That's what he's coming to do. And the joyful results of that wake-up call are seen in verse 17 then where we see that those who are still alive when Jesus returns, those who've fallen asleep, come together once again in this huge family reunion like we saw in that video, only like a billion times bigger and greater. Together again in the presence of the Lord, verse 17 promises us forever. Never again to be parted. For everyone here who's ever been touched by death's sting before, had to stand by the graveside of a loved one, had to shake and weep with tears at the loss of a spouse, a child, a friend. I know that the hope of being reunited, it almost sounds too wonderful to be true. But if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the promise of God's word here is we should also, we can also believe that we're going to see those friends who have fallen asleep once again. God's going to bring them with Jesus when he returns. It's a hope, you know what, honestly, that the rest of the world has no concept of in the face of death. It's why if you've ever been to a funeral of someone who doesn't know Jesus, one of the greatest hopes, very tragically and sadly, that's offered is memories. Great memories of that person. I'm always going to remember how... Mom did this, uncle did this. But those memories even are only carried as long as those who hold them are alive. And then those memories vanish. 
Not so for the believer in Jesus. Paul's hopeful trumpet call here is, don't be unaware, don't be ignorant about what God says is true about those who've fallen asleep in Jesus. Grieve, yes, grieve, but not as those who have no hope. Say, see you later. See you soon. Never goodbye. For because Jesus died and has risen, there is a day coming when those who have fallen asleep in him will wake up. And more than the memories from this past life, we will go on to create an eternity of memories with them as we live and love and worship forever in the presence of our Lord. That's the hope of Jesus coming again. That's real hope. And in the face of death and loss that everyone, Christian or not, we all are touched by that. That's real hope to be found. And it's a hope we need to be reminded of and which we need to encourage one another with regularly, as verse 18 says. And we need that encouragement so badly because, as we said, the longer Jesus is gone, the longer his return waits, the weaker our hope of his return can become for us. Thinking about the delay, thinking about the time he's taking before he comes again, Peter reminds us in his second letter, 2 Peter 3.9, he says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. He's being patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Which means... The trumpet call of Paul's words here is not simply to encourage those who long for Jesus' return. It's also to create that longing in the hearts of those who don't yet know him. They might see this hope and be like, that sounds amazing. I'd like to know that hope as well. Instead of only a fearful expectation of death, they too could know the hope of Jesus' coming. For one day, our eyes at last shall see him. As the carol says, by his redeeming love. And only by his redeeming love. Will we look on the one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas, who gave his life to purchase a redemption? Have you ever thought about this? Everything we read in God's word about Jesus, you're going to see that person. You're going to look on his face. Can you even imagine what that would be like? And as we remember the redeeming love of Jesus, demonstrated supremely in his death on the cross and in his victory over death in his resurrection, our hope in Jesus coming again can truly be restored. We can say with the Apostle Paul, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will all be changed, for the imperishable must close itself. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? 
Where, O death, is your sting? This is the hope of Jesus coming again. And we say, along with John, the end of book Revelation, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.